everybody. Welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Dana Trupiana, and I cover infamous gangsters in a true crime-like format. My show, Mob Times, has been coming out on Tuesday around 7 a.m., and that's been working. So I think we're going to keep it on that schedule. So my show, Mob Times, comes out every Tuesday at 7 a.m. So we're back to our regularly scheduled programming after my video regarding Billy came out last week. I cannot tell you how thankful I am for all the support that that video got. It was amazing to see people actually care about this case, because I spent such a long time believing that nobody did. Now that Maverick has spotlighted the case, there's been such an outpouring of support that I could not appreciate it more. I seriously love each and every one of you. Also, my GoFundMe is at $6,400, and for the first time, I actually feel like it's realistic and I'm actually going to be able to get a PI and figure out what the hell happened, why and how. Maverick might be the best person I've ever met in my life. He made an initial donation of $2,000, and then when he put the video about Billy's case up, he donated an extra $3,000, so now in total, he's put $5,000 into my GoFundMe. We still have a ways to go to hit 10k, but it feels like it actually might happen now, and I can't thank Maverick enough for all of the help that he's given me and all of Billy's family and friends. Thank you so much, Maverick. I'll never be able to repay you for your generosity, but I hope knowing that we are all in awe of you helps a little bit. Also, here's your reminder to subscribe. Again, subscribing instead of just watching the videos, it really does help out the channel. Interacting with the video, liking it, commenting on it, sharing it. It's such a huge help to any channel, but especially small channels like mine. Like, I haven't even hit 10,000 followers yet. So if you're able to subscribe, if you're able to comment, if you're able to share, I mean, anything that you can do, I'd really appreciate it. So please, right now, check if you're following. If you're not following, please subscribe and drop a comment on my video because it really helps and I really, really appreciate it. Plus, I love talking to you guys in the comments. It's so fun for me. That's absolutely my favorite part of having a YouTube channel is being able to talk to you guys in the comments. So if you haven't commented, go ahead and comment on this video or any other video and let's talk. So let's go ahead and get the Tommy Lucchese video wrapped up, shall we? Now, again, this video probably could have been made into one video. I could have made it a really, really long video, but I was recording it the day before Thanksgiving and I had so much to do. So I was just like, listen, we're going to make it a two-parter. I'm really sorry. I know I left some of you on the hook and you were anticipating this video. I'm so sorry, guys. I really wasn't trying to like mess with your head or anything. I just had to get the turkey cooked, I swear. <laughs> So let's talk some more about the power moves in the world of organized crime. Gaetano Lucchese teamed up with Louis Lepke Buchalter, a real heavyweight in the mob game and in the Jewish mafia. Together, they ran the show, especially in the Garment District. The Garment District was a goldmine for organized crime, with all sorts of illegal stuff going down. 
like labor racketeering and extortion. Even just through legitimate business, these guys were raking in the money. He also held a lot of control in the trucking industry. He and his compadres took control of key unions and trade associations, leaving them with near unfettered power in both of these industries. During this time, he also started working with Johnny Dio, another big name in the Garment District's organized crime racket. These guys all took all of the money that they were making and funneled it into loan sharking, which was a huge moneymaker for organized crime. The rates that they charged for these loans were astronomical, making it an extremely profitable illegal business venture. This works especially well during this time. We're in the heart of the Great Depression, where virtually every American has come upon hard times. When things got bad, even regular everyday Americans that had never even thought of getting involved in crime would turn to the mafia for help. Now, let's fast forward a little bit to 1951. When Gaetano Tommy Gagliano kicked the bucket, it was a game changer for the Lucchese family. The mob keeps things rolling, even when a boss retires or meets the great beyond. With Gagliano's passing, Gaetano Tommy Lucchese, who had been the underboss and basically the street boss for about two decades, stepped up as the natural leader. Under Tommy Lucchese's rule, the Lucchese crime family stayed a heavyweight in the mafia world. They kept their hands in all sorts of shady stuff, like labor racketeering, extortion, illegal gambling, you name it. If it's a crime that the mafia regularly commits, the Lucchese's were in there, and they were going hard. In the early 50s, with Tommy Lucchese calling the shots, the Lucchese family made some big moves in the world of organized crime. Tommy knew the importance of having a strong team, so he handpicked his crew. Stefano LaSalle got the nod for underboss, the second highest position, and Vincenzo Rao became the consigliere, the family's trusted advisor. In the early 50s, he decided to team up with two other heavy-hitting crime families, the Luciano family, who was currently being led by Vito Genovese, and the Anastasia family, being run by Carlo Gambino. This wasn't just a casual friendship either, it was a strategic alliance to tighten their grip on the American Mafia. Now, why did they do this? Well, they had their sights set on the commission, the big kahunas of organized crime families. These guys had the authority to settle disputes, regulate criminal activities, and make decisions that affected all of the Mafia families. Lucchese, Genovese, and Gambino wanted in on that action. They wanted to flex their muscles and secure powerful positions within the commission. Honestly, I really couldn't tell you why he chose Vito Genovese and Carlo Gambino to team up with. I really couldn't. Both were currently underbosses, with a plan to overthrow their bosses and take control. I mean, I get that you spent the last who knows how long being the underboss to Gagliano. And the other four families made a little club and they kept you out of it, so you obviously want some friends. I get that. But these two? I mean, I guess if you have to go to the second string to get your friends, you get them where you can get them. I get that. It just seems like, as the boss of your own family, you could chill with, like, a higher class of people than two men who have ambitions to kill their boss and take the role. Like, that's the best you could do? Vito Genovese? Come on now. There's gotta be a better pick. There has to be. But Vito Genovese it was. 
It's okay, though, because soon enough, Genovese was kicked out of this new alliance, and it became a group of Luciano, Castello, Lansky, Gambino, and Lucchese. Honestly, this could have gone a whole different way. If I was Luciano, and Genovese and Gambino tried to take out my best friend Costello, and then actually took out my actual best friend Anastasia, first off, Gambino would have been dead right then and there. No question, no conversation, dead. Then, everybody who was friends with them, i.e. Lucchese, even if you saved my life in the past, you're dead. I applaud Luciano's restraint because I would not have had that restraint. No way would I have been able to be friends with Lucchese or Gambino or Genovese, like none of them. I wouldn't be able to look at them. What set Tommy Lucchese apart was his knack for making friends in really high places like rubbing shoulders with New York City politicians, including mayors William O'Dwyer and Vincent Impelitieri. Impelitieri, a Sicilian-born politician, had absolutely no shot at winning the race for city council president. That was until Lucchese stepped in. Lucchese helped get Impelitieri elected, thus having him under his thumb for his entire term. O'Dwyer was forced to resign in 1950 after a political scandal, and Impelitieri stepped in and took position as mayor. As mayor, Impelitieri had no shame in going on public outings with known mafia members, claiming to just be meeting them for business purposes. I'm not doing anything wrong, okay? Yeah, they might be in the mafia, but like they're also businessmen, and I need to meet with business people for business stuff, okay? Now, you might wonder, why would a mob boss want to have pals in politics? Well, it's all about protection and influence. Having those connections gave Tommy and his crew a leg up in the city's underworld. But Tommy wasn't just a political operator. He lived and breathed La Cosa Nostra code, making money, staying out of the spotlight, and dodging the long arm of the law. These were golden rules of the game, and Tommy knew how to play by them. And let's not forget Tommy's secret weapon, his discretion. This guy was all about staying behind the scenes and avoiding direct criminal involvement and those pesky legal consequences. He wasn't the kind of mob boss that you would see on the front page of a newspaper. Most people didn't even know who he was. Tommy followed in Gagliano's footsteps, and he began using a trusted middleman to relay any orders that he had, which kept him in the shadows and out of the spotlight. It's like Mob Boss 101. Lower your public profile, and you'll last longer in the game. Less attention from the public equals less attention from authorities. And Tommy sure did, leading the Lucchese family for nearly two decades. And that's just as the boss. That's like a lifetime in the mob world. He used his brains more than his brawn, which led to much less arrests and much more money. He would rarely talk to the media, but when he did, he insisted that he wasn't in the mafia and he had committed no crimes. I'd say Lucchese is the big boss. However, Lucchese staunchly opposed that. He told reporters, I make 100k a year with my dress factories. I got 1,500 people working for me. I give them all the fringe benefits, plus turkeys twice a year. If a girl has a baby, I give her a carriage or $50. If it's twins, the parents get a car. Triplets, I buy them a house, but nobody's had twins or triplets yet. 
His criminal career was so tightly under wraps that he had politicians and board members as friends who supposedly had no idea whatsoever about his involvement in crime until they were called before a government committee themselves for the relationship. He was viewed by everybody as a legitimate businessman. Although he did everything that he could to avoid violence and stay on the right side of the law, Tommy Lucchese was still well known as a stone-cold killer. One thing you've got to understand about Tommy and his crew is that they lived and died by Omerta, the code of silence and loyalty in La Cosa Nostra. These guys were Fort Knox when it came to keeping their mouths shut. They wouldn't spill the beans to the cops or spill any secrets about the mafia's inner workings. It's all about loyalty to the family, even when the heat is on. Now, let's not kid ourselves. While Tommy might be a master of discretion, the Lucchese family was into all sorts of criminal enterprises. Labor racketeering, extortion, illegal gambling, you name it. Tommy might have played it cool, but his crew was out there doing the dirty work. As was he when he wasn't the boss of the family and was just acting like the boss on the streets. Don't forget, Lucchese racked up 30 bodies under Joe Masseria earlier in the story. So just because he's now in a position where he can have people do his dirty work for him doesn't mean that he's not capable of doing whatever needs to be done if push comes to shove. Lucchese was called before the New York Crime Commission, administered by Robert F. Kennedy. Kennedy claimed that Lucchese gave a lot more information than any other witnesses that he had questioned. He said questioning Lucchese was almost a pleasure, but Lucchese never once admitted to any affiliation with the Mafia. I don't know why RFK said that, honestly. It looks to me like Lucchese pled the fifth the whole trial. He really didn't give any information. Maybe RFK was just trying to stir up some animosity against Lucchese by acting like he got some information when he really didn't. But when I'm looking at the trial, all I see is Lucchese pleading the fifth. So I don't know why RFK got out there and was like, oh, he gave us so much information. He's so great. It was a pleasure to talk to him. I think he was just trying to piss off other mafia members and get them mad at Lucchese. Standing in court, Lucchese claimed... I know nothing of any Cosa Nostra. Never heard of it. The only thing I belong to is the Knights of Columbus. When he was called before the McClellan Committee, he pled the fifth, even though he had already been outed by Valachi as playing a major part in the American Mafia. And that is evidenced by the fact that we, to this day, call it the Lucchese family, which is the name that was given by Valachi when he named off who was the boss of each of the five families of New York City. Lucchese wasn't even called to testify at the Kefauver Committee. The Lucchese family had their hands in everything, from controlling labor unions to pulling the strings behind the scenes. To get a grip on these industries, they infiltrated labor unions, placing their own people in key positions. This move allowed them to flex their muscles during labor negotiations, worker strikes, and basically run the show. It's like a puppet master pulling the strings behind the scenes. But that's not all. They also had this nifty little trick called extortion and protection rackets. Business owners in the garment district and the trucking industry had to pay up, or else. They called it protection money, but it was more like a mobster's insurance policy. You pay, or things might get real ugly, real fast. It's all about keeping the cash flow in the family's pockets. 
the Lucchese family had some serious control over labor unions, which meant that they could call the shots when it came to employment terms, wages, and all things labor-related. They had their fingers in many pies, and that allowed them to rake in massive illegal profits. And their stronghold in the garment district and the trucking industry was no joke. They had this intricate mix of legal and illegal activities going on, and it was at the heart of their entire criminal operation. It's like a complex spider's web, and they're right at the center. Gaetano Tommy Lucchese and Santo Traficante Jr., who was the boss of the Tampa crime family, teamed up to control a narcotics trafficking network during the 1950s. And it seemed like Gaetano Lucchese and Santo Traficante Sr., the former boss of the Tampa Mafia family, had a long-standing partnership. They probably got into the organized crime game together at the same time, so they had each other's backs. In fact, Lucchese wasn't just about making money. He was also a bit of a mentor to Santo Traficante Jr. He was passing down mafia traditions and practices, like a wise old sage of organized crime information. Now, Traficante Jr. wasn't just sitting around in sunny Tampa. He would regularly make the trip to the Big Apple to meet with Tommy Lucchese. These meetings weren't just for a friendly little chat. They were all about coordinating their shady dealings, discussing business, and basically solidifying their partnership. But of course, the narcotics trade wasn't all sunshine and roses. Sure, it brought in big bucks, but it also got a lot of attention from law enforcement. They were on the prowl, actively trying to take down these drug trafficking networks. So it's a very high-stakes game for these mobsters. Their partnership in the drug game was just one piece of the puzzle. Back in the 1950s, the organized crime scene was a wild mix of illegal activities. Narcotics trafficking was only one item on a long grocery list of criminal operations. Now, when we talk about influential mafia figures, Santo Traficante Jr. definitely takes the cake. He was the boss of the Traficante family from 1954 to 1987, and he was a big player in Florida, and even had some connections down in Cuba thanks to his dad, Santo Traficante Sr., who brought the rival groups together. Traficante wasn't just tied to one family. He had connections all over. He had some links to the Bonanno family in New York, but his bond with Sam Giancana in Chicago was even stronger. He had ties all over the country. Back in the day, there were these loose connections between New York family interests and Florida's East Coast. Names like Meyer Lansky, Bugsy Siegel, Angelo Bruno, Carlos Marcello, and Frank Regano were in the mix, making moves and maybe causing some trouble along the way. Lucchese had to deal with denaturalization proceedings, which is basically a legal process where the government says, hey, you got your citizenship through some shady shit. We want to take it away and kick you out of our country. In Tommy's case, they claimed that he did not disclose his full arrest record when he applied for U.S. citizenship in the 1930s. That's a big deal, because your arrest history can affect whether you get that precious citizenship in the first place. Their argument was that if they had known that he had an arrest record, they would never have given him citizenship in the first place. Denaturalization is like the undo button for citizenship, and it happens when someone's citizenship was obtained by fraud or giving false or incomplete information during the naturalization process where you get your citizenship. Now, this wasn't just about Tommy. 
The government was on a mission to target and disrupt organized crime figures who had snuck their way into U.S. citizenship and used it to do some shady shit after that. By going after denaturalization, they basically wanted to take away all the perks of being a citizen and maybe, if they were lucky, kick all of these guys out of the country the way that they were able to do with Luciano and Joe Adonis. But denaturalization proceedings are a whole complicated legal process. It involves investigations, hearings, and a lot of legal arguing. Whether the government's case against Tommy would stick or not depended on the evidence and the arguments that they brought to the table. It's May 3rd, 1957, and an assassination attempt goes down on Frank Costello, the street boss of what we now know as the Genovese crime family. Vincent Gigante, doing Vito Genovese's dirty work, shoots and wounds Costello. Why? It's all part of a power play by Vito Genovese, who's hungry for the top spot in the family. See, he had recently arrived back in America after he killed Ferdinand Baccia and fled for Italy. While he was in Italy, he spent millions and millions of dollars helping Mussolini take control. He paid for camps and military positions to be created so that Mussolini could take power further and further south in Italy. He was soon caught by one of the American military leaders who thought it was super shifty that he was helping the American military while also throwing a shit ton of money into Mussolini's pocket. So after that American military member caught him, he was deported back to New York, where he stood trial and had his case thrown out after he killed all of the witnesses. Now that he's back in New York and he's able to be back there, he's out to take control from Costello. Now, Costello, he's not too thrilled about this close call. He was just minding his own business and he gets shot and if Gigante's shot had been a little better, he'd be dead. He decides to retire from his role as the street boss. This was the golden opportunity that Genovese had been waiting for and he swoops in to take control. Fast forward to October 25th, 1957 and Albert Anastasia, the boss of the Anastasia family, which later became the Gambino family, gets whacked in a barber shop inside a hotel. This was a major event in the power struggle within the Anastasia family, and Carlo Gambino steps up to be the new boss. These major events are like chess moves in a larger power struggle within the American Mafia. I already have a video on Frank Costello and Albert Anastasia. Actually, I have a four-part video on Albert Anastasia. So if you want to hear any more information on either of those events, I'll have the links for those videos in the description of this video. After Anastasia's death, Vito Genovese decides to call a nationwide gathering of mob bosses from different crime families. This meeting had a few main topics. It was originally called for Genovese, but things to discuss were scheduled to be gambling, casinos, especially those in Cuba, the narcotics trade, interests and rackets in the New York garment industry, and hopefully quell some of the tenseness that was going on in between the families. It was very clear that a war was brewing. Aniello Della Croce and Armand Rava were gearing up to go to war against Genovese and his allies. Which is super weird because Della Croce was the underboss to Gambino, and Gambino was the biggest ally of Genovese. So something had to have happened between Gambino and Genovese, but Genovese had called the meeting to get Gambino a legit position as boss of the family. So 
the war that's going on, it seems like maybe Aniello Della Croce was going against Gambino on this. I'm not 100% sure. They decide that this big meeting that they're planning is going to be held at the rural home of Joseph Joe the Barber, Barbera, in Appalachia, New York. Why? Because it's tucked away from the prying eyes of the law. Barbera said that he didn't want to do it at his house. He had been having trouble recently with quelling the law enforcement in the area. He wasn't able to pay them off and make them do what he wanted recently. He didn't think he had the police in his pocket anymore. But Genovese was kind of like, eh, whatever, we'll be fine, don't worry about it, everything's cool, just shut up. Just give me your key and go away. On November 14th, 1957, apparently... Someone had tipped off the New York State Police about a secret gathering. There's a lot of fighting about this. No one can really give a clear and concise answer on exactly what happened here. The cops claimed that they weren't even tipped off. They just knew something weird was going on when a shit ton of really nice caddies started pouring into town. Some people claimed that it was Genovese himself who tipped off authorities. Others claimed that it was an anonymous tip. Most likely, they knew it was happening way before anything actually happened because they were wiretapping, both legally and illegally, a bunch of the dudes that were going to be going to this meeting. And they had been listening in on their conversations. So they had a heads up from a few different sources way before this meeting ever actually went down. They even had Barbera's house under surveillance. And they knew that his son was reserving a bunch of rooms at hotels nearby and buying a shit ton of food from the local butchers. So I'm guessing it wasn't the caddies. They just knew because they were listening. The cops showed up and as they approached, chaos broke out. Mobsters started scattering like cockroaches when the lights come on. The police were able to detain a whopping 61 of these mafiosi for a little Q&A. Oh, and here's the kicker. Our man, Gaetano Tommy Lucchese, was running late to the party, so he missed all the fun and games with the cops. I am willing to bet my pinky finger that Lucchese was actually there at the conference, but he got away on foot. No way did he just so happen to be late. No, I call bullshit. He was there, he got away on foot, and then he's like, I was running late, I don't know. Like, come on. No, he was there. He was just faster than the 61 that got caught. And who were these other guys? Well, we're talking about big shots in the mafia world, like Vincenzo Rao, who was Lucchese's consigliere, Carlo Gambino, Joseph Barbera, Russell Buffalino, Giovanni Bonventre, Joseph Riccobono, Paul Castellano, Joseph Perfacci, Joseph Magliocho, Joseph Ida, John Scalish, Joseph Falcone, Frank Cucciera, Santo Traficante Jr., Joseph Savello, Frank Zito, Salvatore Cufari, Antonino Magadino, Constance Valente, Luis LaRosso, James Coletti, Frank Di Simone, Nicholas Savella, Michael Genovese, and Vito Genovese. The presence of these big, huge names within the world of organized crime tells you just how important and significant this meeting was. Because these guys did not travel for nothing. This meeting, and the arrests that took place afterwards, did not stay under wraps. No, it got huge media coverage, shining a big, bright spotlight on the American Mafia. It made people realize just how deep and wide the mob's influence and activities went. 
So what happens next? Well, the police raid and all the commotion that followed put a fire under law enforcement's belly. They cranked up their efforts, investigating and prosecuting mobsters left and right. The Appalachian meeting was a turning point. It showed the world how the mafia could coordinate across crime families and revealed just how far the national reach went. This event changed how people saw organized crime in the United States. Because a lot of people, even still, didn't believe that the mafia was a real thing. They had spent so long with J. Edgar Hoover telling them that the mafia wasn't real. It was a bedtime story. It was a myth that a lot of people still believed that. But things like this, things like all of these mafia members being arrested at a mafia meeting, it brought a huge spotlight on them one that they didn't want or need. After that whole police raid debacle in 1957, Genovese found himself in a pretty embarrassing situation. To make things worse, he had a growing list of mob leaders, including big names like Luciano, Costello, Lansky, Gambino, and Lucchese teaming up against him at this point. They were on a mission to kick Genovese to the curb and get rid of his influence in the mafia. Fast forward to 1959, and the big moment arrives. Genovese was arrested on narcotics trafficking charges involving a multi-million dollar per year heroin smuggling case on July 7th, 1958. Police claimed that this drug ring purchased drugs in Europe, diluted them, and distributed them throughout major cities in the United States. And Genovese was alleged to be the head honcho, having planned and directed every single move that this drug ring made. He was arrested at his home in New York on Highland Avenue. The indictment included himself and a few of his big-time buddies, Carmine Galante and Vincent the Chin Gigante. This man did not stand a chance at this trial. Even the coalition of mob leaders supported his arrest. They were determined to weaken him and strip him of any power that he had in the American Mafia. Then the hammer fell. Genovese was convicted of conspiracy to violate the federal narcotics law. He was expected to be handed a sentence of somewhere between two and four years. However, on April 3, 1959, he was thrown into jail with a 15-year prison sentence and a $20,000 fine, which doesn't sound like that much now, but back in 1959, that's a lot of money. This effectively kicked him out of his leadership seat in the Genovese crime family. His last-minute statement to the judge was, All I can say, Your Honor, is I am innocent. And honestly, he very well may have been. Ralph Salerno, a well-known NYPD detective, made a statement saying, Anyone who understands the protocol and insulation procedures would find the notion that Genovese personally handled drug deals almost unbelievable. It's pretty likely that he was set up by the powerful enemies that he had made to take the fall in this case. Whatever though, because he deserved every single minute that he spent behind bars. Nobody cried over his loss of freedom. No one. Nonetheless, he was in it for the long haul. During his prison stay, he got into a beef with fellow cellmate Joseph Valachi, dispatching hitmen to take him out in the prison. This spooked Valachi and led to, arguably, the biggest mafia turncoat testimony to ever take place, all because of Genovese, who, I guess, was determined to take down the mafia from within the prison walls. He stayed behind bars until his death on Valentine's Day of 1969. Now, while all of this is going on, 
Gaetano Tommy Lucchese was in his own legal tug-of-war. Back in 1952, there were some denaturalization proceedings against him, but guess what? The U.S. Supreme Court said, not so fast, and they overturned the ruling in April of 1958 thanks to a legal technicality, because this man could afford some good-ass lawyers. U.S. Attorney General William P. Rogers wasn't about to just give up. The very next day, he fired up a new case against Lucchese, showing that the legal battles to challenge his citizenship were far from over. Back in 1963, Joseph Magliocho, the boss of the Magliocho crime family, and Joseph Bonanno, the big boss of the Bonanno crime family, cooked up an audacious plan. These two schemers came up with a plot to eliminate some heavy-hitting bosses from the Mafia Commission. Their hit list included big names like Carlo Gambino, the boss of the Gambino crime family, Gaetano Lucchese, in charge of the Lucchese family, Stefano Magadino, who was in charge of the Buffalo family, and Frank D. Simone, the head honcho of the Los Angeles crime family. I personally don't really believe the narrative here, but if you're interested in hearing all about this whole thing, I do have a whole video on Joseph Bonanno, as well as a whole video on Stefano Magadino, and I'll link both in the description, but I'll give you guys a quick rundown here. Magliocho and Bonanno wanted to take the reins of the Mafia Commission by getting rid of their rival bosses. With these guys out of the picture, they aimed to grab control of the commission, giving them a major say in organized crime activities across the entire country. And how did they plan to do it? They tried to recruit some hired guns to carry out the assassinations. These hitmen were supposed to launch coordinated attacks on targeted bosses to kick them out of the commission or just take them out altogether. So you've got Joseph Magliocho and Joseph Bonanno scheming to take out some major mafia bosses back in the 60s. But... Lady Luck was on the side of the intended victims this time. The whole crazy plot was exposed, and not just by law enforcement. Other mobsters caught wind of it too. Having been given the order to carry out the attacks, Joseph Colombo decided it would be a better power play to bring this to the intended victims instead of just carrying out the hit orders. He went before the commission and told them that he had been ordered to kill them by Joseph Magliocho. The commission, knowing Magliocho, knew that this couldn't have been planned by him alone, and they pinned Bonanno as being the real brains behind the operation. The plot getting exposed didn't just create a headache for Magliocho and Bonanno. It led to some major internal strife and power struggles within their own crime families. Joseph Bonanno, in particular, had a really tough time holding on to his leadership because of his involvement in this failed scheme. They were about to face some major consequences, like being kicked out of their top spots in their respective crime families. This would lead to the Banana Wars and the first major upheaval within the Bonanno family since its formation. You see, keeping the mafia hierarchy intact was a big deal, and when trouble brewed, they needed to step in to maintain the power structure. So enter the commission, the ruling body of the American Mafia. They had a big role to play in all of this. When the plot hatched by Magliocho and Bonanno was uncovered, it was a game changer. The commission wasn't having any of it. They wanted answers, and they wanted them fast. They needed to figure out why these two were trying to shake things up with an assassination plot. 
Joseph Bonanno, the boss of the Bonanno crime family, who was suspected of masterminding the whole plot, decided to pull a disappearing act, and he fled from Montreal, Canada. On the other hand, you've got Joseph Magliocho, the head of the Magliocho crime family, who took a completely different approach. He showed up before the commission and came clean regarding his involvement. He spilled the beans, sharing all the nitty-gritty details of the planned assassinations and who else was in on it. It probably helped him a lot that he was really sick and he was dying when he did this. So he had to have been like, like, meh, what's the worst that could happen? They kill me? It's coming anyways, whatever, bring it, bitch. Now, the commission had some serious decisions to make. They dug into Magliocho's confession and all of the evidence presented, and they came down hard. They slapped Magliocho with a hefty $50,000 fine for his part in the scheme, and to add to the drama, they basically forced him into early retirement, putting an end to his leadership of the Magliocho crime family. Joseph Colombo was handed the role of boss of that family in exchange for him turning on his boss and exposing the conspiracy rather than attempting to take out these really important guys. As for Joseph Bonanno, his decision to run and stay away from the mafia's leadership marked the beginning of the end of his influence within the organization. He was extradited from Canada and went back to New York, and while he was there, he was supposedly kidnapped by Stefano Magadino, his cousin. He disappeared again and then reappeared later. I don't know. It was like a whole mess with Bonanno. As I said, I did a video on him and I did a video on Stefano Magadino. If you want to hear more about this, you can go check that out. I don't believe for one second that Stefano Magadino was ever a target. I don't think anybody was ever hired to kill him and I don't think Bonanno wanted him dead one day. On July 13th, 1967, at the age of 67 years old, Tommy Lucchese breathed his last breath in Lido Beach, New York. It was a brain tumor that got the best of him, and he was at his home on Long Island when he passed away. He knew his death was coming. He had been diagnosed with a brain tumor after going to a doctor with severe migraines, and they told him that he had about a year to live. Although he lived past the expected time that he was going to die, around two years after his diagnosis, Lucchese passed away. With his death, we saw the end of an era in the Lucchese crime family and the entire American mafia. For his farewell, they chose the Our Lady of Miraculous Metal Church in Point Lookout, New York. This holy place became the backdrop for bidding adieu to this respected mafia boss. It's pretty huge that he was able to have a service at a church. Most of the time, churches turn away mafia guys, or anybody who's even accused of being in the mafia. So the fact that a church allowed a service for him is actually really cool. I think it's really messed up when churches won't let mafia members have a service there, because services aren't for the people. It's for their family. I can promise you, Tommy Lucchese's wife is not in the mafia, and she deserved to bury her husband. As for his resting place, Tommy found his eternal home in Calvary Cemetery in Queens, New York. That cemetery is gigantic, and it's right off a major highway. I used to pass it on a daily basis when I was commuting to New York City for work. What's truly intriguing here is the diverse guest list at Tommy Lucchese's funeral. You have politicians, judges, law enforcement personnel, and, of course, 
You've also got figures from the criminal underworld, drug traffickers, pimps, and hitmen, all coming together. It speaks volumes about the extensive connections and influence that Tommy held, not only within the Mafia, but well beyond. Let's talk about Mafia Succession, which is like a secret society within a secret society. So Gaetano Tommy Lucchese had his top pick for his successor, Antonio Tony Ducks Corallo. This guy was a big deal in the Lucchese crime family, but Corallo was behind bars when Tommy passed away. This made the whole succession thing pretty tricky. You see, jailed mob bosses can run the show from prison through intermediaries, but Tommy might have wanted someone that was able to give a more hands-on approach. In the end, since Corallo couldn't stand up, the family had to choose a new boss. Leadership passed on to somebody else, as often happens in the Mafia, when the top choice is unavailable due to legal issues. Antonio Tony Ducks Corallo was a New York City Mafia member who had a grip on the city's transportation and construction unions. Back in the 20s, he joined the 107th Street Gang in East Harlem, just like Lucchese and Luciano did. In 1935, he joined the Gagliano criminal family, which eventually became the Lucchese family. Tony Ducks had his fair share of run-ins with the law, including a drug bust in 41 that landed him six months in Rikers Island. In his early 30s, he became capo of his own crew in 1943. He was detained multiple times between 41 and 60, but none of those cases ever even went to court. He was so good at avoiding convictions that he earned the nickname Tony Ducks, like he ducks from the law. Get it? As for Tommy Lucchese's second choice for succession, that was Etor Eddie Coco. But Eddie had his own legal issues, so his time as boss was likely just a temporary gig. Eddie Coco took on the role leading the Lucchese family. He had some interesting ties, like working with Frankie Carbo and others in the combination, which was a part of Murder, Inc. They were into boxing, and they had a lot to do with fight-fixing as well. Lucchese even had the audacity to tell his neighbors before any major fight who to bet on, and they always won. Coco was a key figure in Rocky Graziano's boxing career. But by the 50s, he had some legal issues, including a murder charge in Florida. He got a life sentence in 1953, but he was released in 1965 after serving over a decade. When the head of the Lucchese family, Tommy Lucchese, passed away in 1967, Coco was in the running to take over. He actually served as the interim boss for a bit. But things changed when Carmine Tramonti stepped in after Coco decided that he didn't really want the job and he resigned. One notable figure in the running for this position of top spot that kept getting pushed off because the people that were chosen were in legal drama was Vincenzo Vincent John Rao, who served as the consigliere. The consigliere advises the boss and has a say on all important decisions. If you're looking at it in terms of a chart, it goes boss, then underboss, and consigliere is on the same level, so boss underboss consigliere. So it's a really important position. Rao had a very interesting background. He was another member of the 107th Street Gang and had multiple uncles that were black hand. He eventually became consigliere underboss Gaetano Lucchese in the 1950s. Vincenzo Rao was arrested at the Appalachian Conference and was one of only three people representing the Lucchese family that was apprehended there. 
when he was questioned, he said that he went to the Appalachian Conference for a buffet, and he didn't chat with anybody because he wasn't introduced. In the 1963 Valachi proceedings, Rao got pointed out as the guy representing the Lucchese family. He even got slapped with perjury charges in 1965 and did a five-year stretch in prison for it. It was a really rocky road for him. He was seen as a potential boss when Tommy Lucchese fell ill, but his legal troubles got in the way. He retired in the 1970s and passed away in 1988 of natural causes. When a recognized boss or their chosen successor is unavailable due to legal issues, like jail time, the American Mafia often appoints an acting boss. Carmine Tremonti stepped into this role, kind of like a stand-in, until Antonio Tony Duck's Corallo, the original pick by Tommy Lucchese, got out of prison. Acting bosses like Tremonti take on the responsibilities of a boss, running the show, making decisions, and keeping the family together. They're like the temporary caretakers, maintaining stability until a more permanent leader can step in. The commission's choice to make Tremonti the acting boss was probably based on his standing within the family. He had the ability to keep things in line, and he also had a willingness to hold down the fort in this tricky transition because, as we saw with Coco, a lot of people didn't want that position during this time. Following Lucchese's death and walking in the footprints he had left behind with his association with the JFK airport, the Lucchese family pulled off the Lufthansa heist in 1978, the largest cash robbery to ever be committed until that point, walking away with $6 million in cash. It was also the boss of the Lucchese family, Anthony Tony Ducks Corallo, who would be wiretapped. Using the information that was found on that wiretap, federal investigators were able to launch the commission trials and arrest the top echelon of the American Mafia. If you're interested in the Mafia Commission trials, I have a video on Paul, Big Paul Castellano, where I go really in-depth into the Mafia Commission trials. So you could check that out if you want to learn more about the Mafia Commission trials. Super interesting stuff. I'll put the link in this description. History remembers Tommy Lucchese as one of the founding fathers of the Mafia, one of the most influential and important Mafia bosses of all time. And because of his position as boss of the family when Joseph Valachi took the stand, his family will carry his name in the public view forever. So that is all I have on this powerhouse of a historic figure, Gaetano Tommy Lucchese. Thanks so much for watching. Join me next week as I delve into the lives and legacies of some of the most fascinating and infamous gangsters in history. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, comment, follow, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye!